We've gotten to some instances in the past where it's just clear as your customers grow, as your product surface area grows, you're not scaling the team as quickly as you'd like to. We've tried to be a lot more thoughtful um, with how we make sure that we don't get into instances where the need for resources lags uh, where we are in the recruiting pipeline. And it, it's kind of a, a thing I need to consistently remind myself of, which is, you know, source for this role tonight, even though you're not going to feel the pain of not having them for another six or eight weeks. I'm Reed McGinley-Stemple. I'm the co-founder and CEO at Stitch. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today I'll read McGinley Stemple built the out-of-the-box solution to enable user authentication without the dev hassle. All this and more on Code Story. Reed McGinley Stemple grew up in Las Vegas but went to school on the East Coast. Frankly, he didn't know what he wanted to do and stumbled, quote-unquote, into management consulting. When I dug into how someone stumbles into this profession, he mentioned that early on he got some sage advice from his older brother about not rushing to law school because being a lawyer isn't that fun. So he followed some friends to Bain & Company. The more projects he was involved in, the more he got interested in technology. Candidly, one of his motivations for going into tech was the fact that he was moving to San Francisco to support his wife through law school at Stanford. He considered continuing to do consulting with Bain, but decided tech was the best route and eventually joined Plaid. Outside of his professional career, he's into the outdoors, loves hiking and taking his very active dog outside. He mentions that living in San Francisco makes the outdoors super accessible. Reed and his co-founder both came from Plaid. There, they explored how to secure bank authentication to maintain security, but also do it in such a way that reduced friction and created an amazing experience. They found that the biggest problem to be solved was the combination of security issues with passwords and the low conversion rate of sign-up sign-in forms requiring passwords. They wanted to fix this. This is the creation story of Stitch. Stitch builds the building blocks that make it possible for developers to simply and securely integrate passwordless authentication into their apps and websites. So you can think about it as we're building the API and SDK layer for you to embed things like biometrics, email magic links, SMS login, OAuth connections like Google, Microsoft, etc. Uh, into your application. And so I sometimes describe us as the Stripe for authentication. We're really focused on developer experience, but then we're also very focused on making it possible for companies to provide a great user experience uh, within their own website. Rather than payments, we're focused on passwordless authentication. My co-founder and I had worked at a company called Plaid for a few years. And for those that aren't familiar with Plaid, if you've ever connected your bank account to Venmo, Coinbase, Robinhood, really any fintech, you've likely used Plaid to connect to that bank account. And so you've gone through the authentication flow with Plaid and Bank of America, Chase, etc. My co-founder and I both worked on the adaptive authentication team there at Plaid, where we thought a lot about 
How do you securely allow user, users to authenticate a bank account without introducing risk of fraud and account takeover? But also, how do you improve the user experience of somebody connecting an account so that we can reduce friction and make it more likely that you convert within that context? And my co-founder and I were really frustrated with passwords when it came to both the security and the user experience and conversion side of things. It was the biggest security headache is that, you know, users reuse passwords relentlessly across many different sites. And so anytime one of those core sites, whether it's LinkedIn or Target or Yahoo is hacked, it creates an opportunity for an attacker to try to steal their Chase or their Bank, Bank of America account. And most users don't think about that risk. But on the other side uh, of kind of user experience, it's something we all deal with on a daily basis where we're probably frustrated by some password-based experience. And as a result, we also saw a really low conversion uh, when you ask a user to sign up with a password or if they've forgotten the password and they're trying to log back into your service. And so we, we saw it as an interesting problem where even though passwords are the predominant way that we've authenticated users for the last 30 years, really there's so many new technologies that be, have become available for authentication in the last five to 10 years uh, that there's a lot of opportunity to just completely retire the password. So let's dive into the MVP then. So tell me about that MVP, how long it took you to build, and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? When we thought about the MVP we wanted to build, it definitely required us to narrow our focus and our concentration because when you think about, you know, building an authentication as a service provider, really we're competing with, you know, incumbents like Okta and Auth0 that have so many disparate different uh, features and products that you, you want to build a lot, but of course we needed to narrow our focus. So we decided to start just with one basic passwordless authentication method, which was email magic links. You as a user may have encountered this with you know Craigslist or something like Instagram does this for their password reset flow now. And so we started with that being the core product that we wanted to produce. Uh, and we started with just an API integration layer for it. So you own the UI and UX, you just use us to trigger magic links, authenticate them. We weren't handling at that time any of the front end around kind of, you know, what this would look like to an end user that's obviously changed. So we started pretty narrow. And then a lot of the work that we did on the MVP was knowing that we are a company that you're trusting a lot of security and reliability with because we're the front door to your application. We had to make sure that we spent a ton of time on the foundation so that it actually would scale past the MVP. And so that's something that maybe not every company needs to think about, but I think the position that we are as critical infrastructure, we spent a lot of time on making sure that the platform and foundation was right. So for context, you know, some of the tools that we used in building the MVP, uh, AWS, we use that as well as a number of their individual products. We use Kubernetes and Argo CD for our CI CD. And then in terms of kind of the code itself, uh, most of our API code is written in Go. So you mentioned being critical infrastructure. And even in the early days when you're building that MVP, I'm sure there was quite a bit of decisions and trade-offs you had to make about, okay, this is what we have to do in the short term. This is what we can delay, or this is what sort of, you know, technical debt we can take on. So tell me about some of those that decisions and trade-offs that you had to make and how you coped with them. The main thing that we decided during the MVP build was that it was okay not to ship bells and whistles on the customer side. It was not okay for the core backend product to not be able to scale with a lot of usage if one of these early customers really took off. Some of the decisions we made there 
was that the first iteration of this email magic link product was just API based. You were owning that front end, like I mentioned earlier. Um, and we really wanted to build a front end around it. And we of course have since, uh, but that was one of the things that we didn't prioritize at the time, knowing that there's a lot of other work that would go on top of that, that wasn't necessarily core to the underlying functionality of the product for authentication. So we spent a lot of time kind of focusing on that underlying authentication product. And since we've been able you know, to get past the MVP stage is when we've been able to add more bells and whistles, like a front end that wraps this, does error handling, et cetera, for you, as well as a lot of net new authentication products that you can kind of weave together uh, next to that first product that we built. Well, from that point, you know, the first product you built, how did you progress it and how did you mature it? And just to kind of box the question into what I'm looking for, how did you build your roadmap and decide, okay, this is the next most important thing to build? The main questions we always ask ourselves when we're thinking about prioritizing products on our roadmap is, um, number one, how much does this increase the addressable market of developers that could benefit from using Stitch? So, you know, how many apps out there need an authentication functionality like this? And then two, how hard is it for them to build it in-house? You know, what, what's the depth of value beyond just the breadth that we can offer a developer that uses Stitch? And so when we thought about kind of, you know, starting with email magic links made a lot of sense because, you know, it's a universal authentication method that you can use on desktop or mobile. Um, you can use it for B2C use cases. You can use it for B2B use cases and still it's, you know, fairly secure. And so really started with kind of that as the original product. And then some of the, you know, new products that we launched after that, that were in that, you know, how do we increase the breadth of distribution and also the depth of value? For example, we wanted to have a really mobile-friendly authentication method, and so SMS passcodes for login were the next product that we shipped. We got a lot of international requests for powering products that would allow for seamless international authentication, so we launched WhatsApp passcodes. And then some of the bigger products that we've launched over the last few quarters, or at last two quarters, I guess, are session management to make it really easy for you to also do um, authorization after you do authentication. So kind of being a full stack solution, going you know deeper on the depth value, um, launching OAuth connections like sign in with Google, Apple, Microsoft, et cetera. Uh, and then most recently building WebAuthn, which is a biometric based protocol, which we found both has a lot of applicability now based on some you know improvements we've seen in devices uh, over the last couple of years and gives a ton of value to the developer because it is such a difficult protocol to integrate yourself, um, both securely, but also just from a spec perspective, it's quite confusing as a protocol. We always think about kind of that depth versus breadth piece. And, you know, it's sometimes more of an art than a science, but we try to at least be thoughtful about that. You caught my attention with the authorization. Authorization can be all over the map, right? Authentication makes sense. Authorization is pretty specific. How how did you go about architecting and, and achieving uh, building a tool to sort of be a you know a, a configurable, expandable uh, framework to achieve that? You're absolutely right that so, so many doors and like potential paths that you can walk down get open when you think about authorization. Uh, where we focused the first product that we built, session management, was really focused on. How do you make it really, really easy for someone to have a full stack functioning sign up and login flow in a few lines of code, but also you know in less than an hour for them to get set up with Stitch? And so the first product with session management is just 
making it possible after you authenticate a user to allow fine-grained session management of that user. And so some of the things we built in there were making it really easy for you to connect the authentication component to the session management, but then also managing that session in a really fine-grained manner. You can revoke it whenever you want. You can add additional authentication factors to it from a 2FA perspective. Usually we see a lot of customers using kind of just-in-time authentication where they'll you know, layer on a two-factor method when a user goes to withdraw money from an account or when they go to take some sensitive action. So it's it very much attached to like the authentication side, how we had built um, you know, session management to start. There are a lot of other questions to your point about other paths you go down and authorization around like role-based access controls, et cetera. And those are things that, you know, frankly, we're still exploring. I think you know, a question we have on, on our back in particular is there's such disparate ways that people need to build it. Is there actually a compelling platform way that you can build it? And I don't think we have the answer there. Actually, we, we get so many different kind of perspectives on it that that's something we're still thinking about. So we've definitely, with authorization, it's very closely tied to authentication because we're focused more on the session piece today, um, but we'll consider moving into a deeper part of that stack in the future. How did you go about building your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? The one thing that we cared a lot about early on um, as we were growing our, our initial team to six and has not really faded at all as we're approaching 30 at this point is making sure that anyone that we bring on on the technical and engineering side also has really good product instincts. Uh, you know, we still don't have PMs at Stitch. We probably won't for a while. Um, and one of the things that is really important to us is that any engineer working on a product can think about it from both the developer perspective of what would I want out of this API or SDK I'm integrating, but also, you know, what would an end user going through this flow want in terms of user experience? And so that was something that we tested a lot for in terms of the final round interviews, uh, where we do, you know, one of the interviews was just an hour long product hypothetical, uh, where we'd walk through, you know, how they think about problem solving, um, how they would diligence a problem, how they would like, what were, what was the feature ideation that they would have, and then how would they validate whether that was the right solution. So that that's always been something that we focus on a lot with the team. Um, and beyond that, I think the two main traits we just look for in everyone is, are they kind and are they ambitious? Um, I think it's a really powerful combination in terms of a company's culture. If you can have people, you know, that everyone enjoys working with, but also that think really boldly about, you know, what could act two, act three look like for a company like Stitch. That's a lethal combination, kindness and ambition, and tends to be maybe not, maybe not all the time, but I tend to find it that there's mixed in between those two is humility, which is incredibly valuable also from a team mentality. So let's flip the scalability then. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one? Was this part of the critical infrastructure decision-making process or are you fighting this as you grow? We definitely built it to scale efficiently from the beginning. And I kind of think back to one of the terms that our, our board members uses, which is go slow to go fast. This is Chetan Putagunta. He's a general partner at Benchmark and he led our seed and he's on the board. And that go slow to go fast mentality makes a lot of sense, I think, for developer-focused uh, companies, especially if you're critical infrastructure, where we probably spent a lot more time thinking about how does the scale at the beginning than your average 
startup needs to, but it's something that has paid a lot of dividends in terms of the velocity of product development since then, uh, and just making sure this isn't something where we're trying to, trying to build the plane as we fly it. There were many pieces where we focused on how do we scale this efficiently from the beginning. Um, there may be some other pieces like on the marketing website or front end of the dashboard where that was less of a pressing need than the core underlying auth APIs and SDKs, but generally it was a, a focus from the beginning. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? The thing I get most excited about is seeing how our actual product suite can reorient how people think about authentication. You know, the overall product suite that we're building, it in itself is a contrast to what you've become used to as an end user and as a developer, where I need to build authentication. You're probably going to presume, oh, I, I built username passwords in the past. I should do that. One of the really nice things that I get to see on a daily basis is how when somebody comes across the options and the ease of integrating passwordless authentication, you're actually able to reorient someone's entire viewpoint on what authentication should look like for their end users. Um, and the reason that gets me really excited is that, you know, there's a huge security implication of us offloading the need for users to think about strong and unique passwords on a personal level. Lots of users are not prepared for that kind of, you know, needing to be in control of that security posture. And so I, I really enjoy the fact that I get to see people have that aha moment with passwordless and then the impact that it has on end users from both a security and usability perspective. And then one other thing there that's just been really exciting is we continue to think a lot about, you know, not only passwordless, but what is the future of authentication generally? And one of the things that we think about is that there's a lot of logged in accounts today that we have that don't talk with other services and, you know, provide good handshakes. An example of that is your email inbox, your SMS inbox, your WhatsApp inbox. They're effectively all pre-authenticated core accounts, but anything we click from them, you know, 90, 95% of the time, you're going to get a logged out experience. And so one of the things I'm particularly proud of that we uh, built last quarter was a product called Embeddable Magic Links, which allows our customers to embed Magic Link authentication invisibly into any customer communications they're already sending. So when somebody clicks on a link, they can deterministically infer, oh yes, this was read at gmail.com that clicked on this, uh, and I can give them a logged in experience. And so that's just adding on to the general thing I'm proud of is seeing how people can have those aha moments when you orient them around. It doesn't always need to be done like this. There's other better ways to handle authentication of users. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I think one mistake that I've made a couple times and trying to be more um, you know, diligent and aware of is how we think about consistently scaling the team. Uh, I think recruiting at a startup is one of those things that is often not a burning fire. Um, it's more of a slow burn where you know you need to add these resources, but maybe there's other things that you're focused on, so you're not sourcing as much as you should for that role. And so I think we've gotten to some instances in the past where it's just clear as your customers grow, as your product surface area grows, you're not scaling the team as quickly as you'd like to. And I'm sure many startup founders can relate to this, um, but I think it's one of the things that we're trying to be a lot more diligent about right now, my co-founder and I, is, you know, as we look at, we've already done 2022 headcount planning, uh, as we look at that um, and think about kind of the choke points that would make it hard for us to get there, like 
Do we have enough recruiters on the team in order to make sure we can hit those numbers? We've tried to be a lot more thoughtful um, with how we make sure that we don't get into instances where the need for resources lags uh, where we are in the recruiting pipeline. And it's kind of a, a thing I need to consistently remind myself of, which is, you know, source for this role tonight, even though you're not going to feel the pain of not having them for another six or eight weeks. Uh, and so that that's one of the mistakes that uh, definitely trying to improve going forward. So what does the future look like for Stitch, the product and for your team? Today, many of our products um, are used for consumer authentication. So you're building an app or a website that a consumer interacts with. How do you give them a passwordless experience? We have a, a small subset of B2B applications as well using us. Um, but you kind of get into different needs there as well with things like SSO, etc. And then one piece that we haven't really touched much is kind of workforce internal authentication, uh, where you know Okta is, is maybe more popular today. And so, you know, one of the things that we're focused on is not just being a consumer authentication company. Um, it was kind of the wedge into the market, but we think there's a lot of broken and frustrating parts of authentication across uh, external authentication for consumers in B2B and internal authentication for workforce um, and, uh, you know, employees. And that's one of the main things that we're focused on is kind of extending the platform so that you can meet all of those different use cases and needs. Uh, and for the team to do that, that obviously does require us to grow uh, into more product-based teams than we are today. Today, you know, we're roughly 30 people. You have a back-end team. You have a product engineering team that doesn't really scale as you get new domains of authentication um, and maybe different you know, trade-offs that you're making with different products. And so that's one of the things as we scale the team that we're thinking about is kind of more product-based teams that can uh, own certain areas of authentication. With the mobile bi- biometrics I see on your website, that that's coming soon. Is there a, a timeline associated with mobile biometrics? Because that's very interesting to me. Yeah, so mobile biometrics, at least native mobile biometrics, will be available next quarter, Q1 of 2022. Um, and the thing that will be available before then, actually in a week or two, right now we're talking on November 2nd, um, the thing that will be available next week, I believe, is our WebAuthn product, which actually has some mobile biometric aspects to it. Uh, but WebAuthn, the difference between that and native mobile biometrics is that we've become very familiar with kind of face ID within a native application, right? So if I'm, you know, if I've downloaded this iOS app or this Android app, um, I can use the built-in OS biometrics in order to authenticate. Uh, one of the things that has not been possible up until the last couple of years is how do I actually do biometrics on web-based applications, so mobile web or desktop web? And that's what the WebAuthn protocol outlines, is how can you actually use the OS uh, biometrics or also hardware keys are also supported by this uh, protocol. How can you use that to provide uh, biometric authentication across web and native? Um, And so that's a really exciting development for us that's actually uh, releasing uh, in mid-November and uh, native mobile biometrics kind of using just the face ID uh, within a native application will be coming next quarter in Q1 2022. Well, let's switch to you, Reed. Who influences the way that you work? I mean, a CEO, a CTO, an architect, really any person that you look up to and why? The co-founders at Cloudflare, even though I, I don't know them particularly well, I, I've met them only um, a couple times, Matthew Prince and Michelle Zatlin, uh, 
they've been big inspirations for me just because I, I believe Cloudflare is one of those companies that's done an amazing job executing on their core product, but has also done a really impressive job at continuing to innovate uh, in terms of new product areas. And you know, the execution over there just from afar has blown me away. And from what I've heard about the culture, it's also a great place to work. And so they're often uh, a company that I follow closely. Um, fortunately, you know, Matthew Prince is actually an angel investor in Stitch. So I, I do get to kind of email him with questions occasionally when I have them. Uh, I try not to bug him too much. Uh, but overall, they're, they're definitely role models of a sort that uh, my co-founder and I look up to in, based on how they've run Cloudflare and the success they've had there. Well, we talked about a mistake, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? I think one of the things we would think about, I had mentioned that we started just API first in terms of our products. And then uh, we, you know, shortly thereafter that MVP, we did uh, provide a front end, a customizable front end SDK so that you could have a a front end wrapper on things like email magic links, SMS, OAuth, et cetera. Uh, I think the front end SDK is really important. It's critical for a lot of use cases. But I think I was actually listening to um, one of your previous podcasts with Launch Darkly uh, co-founder who had mentioned maybe delaying, you know, when they would have built their SDK. Uh, and I think it's something that I think about a little bit as well and have talked about with my co-founder is if you could have started just API first for even longer and then spent more diligent amount of time thinking about what should this front end SDK look like, I think it would have allowed us to have a more kind of comprehensive view of how that front end SDK evolves to, you know, at the point now, it's actually evolved into what we want it to be. But I think it took us a couple quarters to figure out uh, exactly how we wanted that to work. And so that's probably something I would have thought about is, can you start just at the API layer, API first, which we are as a company, uh, but then maybe you wait another couple quarters to introduce the front end SDK uh, until you have, you know, a set of five or six products and you've clearly defined how that front end SDK um, will operate within the, the API uh, products that you already offer. Well, last question, Reed. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I think the biggest thing is just being prepared for the emotional roller coaster that is the founding experience. Um, I think the main thing I would advise them is just figuring out a way to maintain steadiness. Um, How do you remain steady through the really acute highs and lows of starting a company? And that's one of the things that I think my co-founder and I have developed over the last year and a half starting this company, but it's definitely a new feeling um, where you can go from a really acute high to a really acute low quite quickly uh, in the founding experience. And I think the steadiness just provides a lot of value, whether it's clear-headedness in terms of how you problem solve in those uh, instances, making sure you're never getting too comfortable with where you are, uh, but also being steady for the rest of your team in terms of, you know, they're going through this experience too, maybe in a, in a slightly different um, vantage point. And so that's one of the things just kind of on a meta level that I would advise them as they think about the, the founder's journey. That's great advice. Well, Reed, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Stitch. Thanks, Noah. And this concludes another chapter 
of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.